0: dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. My guest today is the eminent historian Tyler Stovall. He's a historian particularly of French history, modern French history and decolonization. Uh, He has a new book out called White Freedom, the Racial History of an Idea. And in that he argues the following, to be free is to be white, and to be white is to be free. In this reading, therefore, freedom and race are not just enemies, but also allies. We have a long discussion here about the extent to which enlightenment ideas of freedom and liberty are intrinsically racist, whether they became racialized, and if so, why, and what the tensions are between the ideals of liberalism and the realities of of racism. This is a book that he says kept him awake at night uh, and was many years in the making. We talk... Among other things about whether the most important line racially is between whites and whiteness and everybody else or whether in the US in particular, the ideas of being black and the anti black racism that has dominated US history is more important. We also talk about the startling true history, I think, of the Statue of Liberty, the controversies around the New York Times. 1619 project and specifically the extent to which slavery was really the motivation for the the war on independence. We talk about school integration, the civil rights movement, how ideas of reason and rationality were used as gatekeepers to enlightenment ideas of liberalism. We talk about the movement away from colonialism, voting rights and critical race theory. It's a a timely conversation based on a really in-depth reading of the history, particularly of the U.S., and France, as you'll see, we don't we don't agree with each other all, all the time. Um, but I, I found it a challenging conversation uh, and a topical one. I hope you do too. Tyler Stovall, welcome to Dialogues.
1: Thank you for having me, Richard.
0: This is a, a great pleasure. I really enjoyed your book. I was challenged by your book, White Freedom: The Racial History of an Idea. You're an eminent historian of France in particular, and and of the, of the US. And I think this was something of a departure for you. You said that this issue of the interweaving of ideas of liberty and race you said it would not leave me alone waking me up in the middle of the night so Mm -hmm. what was it that was driving you to want to write
1: about this topic well first of all the 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 goal was to give my wife a break um so i wouldn't disturb her anymore um (laughs) but are you sleep are you sleeping better now Yes, yes, I am right. sleeping Good. better now, actually, we both right. are. so. Right. Um, but no, the, the, you know a couple of things drove me. I mean, first of all, this seemed to be such a big deal. So many people constantly talked about um, freedom as the uh, central ideal of Western civilization, basically the central goal of Western civilization. And then increasingly in the modern era, increasingly in the last decade or so, they would always then immediately bring up the fact that there were contradictions with this idea of freedom, that freedom didn't necessarily mean freedom in all times, freedom for everybody. And so I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. But increasingly, I found that it was framed in the shape of a paradox, okay? On the one hand, you have countries that really emphasize freedom, but at the same time, they do things that do not uh, conform to that ideal. And I decided I was really not that comfortable with the idea of a paradox, because it seems to me if you have this contradiction, sooner or later, there has to be some sort of underlying, unit, underlying unity that brings these two together, that makes it possible to believe in freedom and to believe in racial difference and racism at the same time. And so that's what, was, what was, I was really looking for. And that's where I came up with the idea of white freedom. In other words, that freedom was fine as long as it was was for a certain type of people, people that were defined as white in many kinds of ways. And it was not just people that had, quote, white skin, because the definition of whiteness is much broader than that. But in Mm -hmm. one way or another, in order to be free, you had to be defined as white.
0: Yeah, so there's this overlap between, we're really going to dig into this, around the idea of whiteness and the idea of, of freedom, which to some extent you think has been there all along. So one story is that, there's this ideal of freedom there's this ideal of liberty that we fell short of and the u.s perhaps the most obvious and mm-hmm. painful example of falling short of an ideal and much of the argument's been about getting closer to that ideal right mm-hmm. and and what you're doing instead of saying look it's it's you know, liberty great we just didn't it's not it's not an incomplete mission that the problems were there from the from the beginning there was a that whiteness and liberty and freedom were to some extent intertwined with each other from the beginning, both mm-hmm. intellectually and historically, I think is is a fair way to, to mm-hmm. put your argument. So I'm going to quote right from the beginning of your, I should say that, the book itself covers a great range. I mean, I love. That there's a chapter on pirates and children as an example of what you call quite savage freedom. The history of colonialism, decolonialism. Inevitably, we won't cover all of it. I just encourage everybody that that whether or not you end up convinced by the uh, central argument or not, and I and I'm I'm not sure where I land on it, but as you'll you'll hear, I'm still to be convinced of some of it. Wow, will you learn a lot along the way. I mean, it's an extraordinary. History uh, as you'd expect, but I'm going to quote from the beginning. You say to be free is to be white and to be white is to be free in this reading. Therefore, freedom and race are not just enemies, but also allies put boldly at its most extreme freedom can be, and historically has been a racist ideology. So. This is the nugget, of this is the heart of your argument, I think. And also where you can I really want to push you to to talk about can be and has been. So mm-hmm. you can restrict liberty and freedom along racial lines and you argue that. But I think the question is, was that an inevitable result of the way freedom was defined in the first place? So it can be and it has been as a matter of historical fact. But do you think that just at a deep intellectual level, the, mm-hmm. there was a a racial component to the very way in which freedom was defined intellectually from the beginning, or was it the his- historical side of it?
1: In order to answer that, let me take, let's take a step back and say that um, in many ways, the ultimate definition of freedom was that freedom was, a pro- was um, something that belonged to humanity. Nobody cares about animals not being free. For example, I'm currently re- uh, reviewing a wonderful book by David Bell called "Men on Horseback" about you know, dictate people like you know uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and George Washington. Um, nowhere in the book does he address the issue of how it felt to the horse hmm. to be you know a subject, right? So nobody cares about animals. Freedom is defined as something that belongs to human beings. Where that becomes a racialized issue, of course, is that uh, in many ways people that are not white are defined as n- not human. Um, and you could go all the way from the debates in the Enlightenment to the idea in the U.S. Constitution that uh, African American slaves were three fifths of a human being in terms of voting rights, but in terms of other ideas as well. So part of it has to do with do you find how you define humanity, and the, to the extent that you define hum- humanity in racialized terms, that in order to be human you have to be white, then freedom goes along with that, because mm-hmm. again. Freedom is a is a part of being a human being. And if you are not a human being, then you could not be free or you have no right to be free.
0: Yeah, so there's a where's the line is part of the argument. And I think you you talk a lot about gender as well, for example, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the denial of, of liberties and, and suffrage and so on to, to women in, in in particular. But I think that the the question that we're gonna be re- re- wrestling with is how how detachable in the end some of these racial ideas are from you know, the idea of, of liberalism itself. And we'll get to, I think, the kind of how you define it at, at the end is as much of an economic challenge uh, as a political one. But when we're drawing those lines, there's an implicit implicit line, which actually explicit many cases between white and non-white. Mm-hmm. Uh and I just want to explore that a little bit because obviously that line has moved a lot. And you talk, mm-hmm. you have whole chapters on what happened to the Irish, for example. Mm-hmm. Right, and for so, on. Yeah. and there's an argument Michael Lind and other people kind of make that actually in the U.S. context, the really important line is black and non-black. Mm-hmm. There's an anti-blackness, uh, and that that's really where the the line has been drawn. Whereas I think you're drawing it more around white whiteness. And so, in the context yeah. of your discussion. Is, it, is white and everybody else as opposed to black and the anti-blackness that we see in American racism. Talk a bit more about where you think about that line being drawn.
1: Sure. And I think in order to address that question, you have to look at the history of groups that have been sort of interstitial, if you will, that um, are not necessarily always defined one way or the other. I mean, for example, the history of Latino peoples in the United States, is a fascinating example. If you look at the current US census, they are not defined as a racial group at all. So you can Mm -hmm. list yourself as Latino, and then you can Mm -hmm. also list yourself as white or black or whatever, right? Um, And over time, there have been really distinctions in the ways that this group has been seen in racial terms and the way that also, because this is also important, the way that they have seen themselves in racial terms. Um, For example, there's a movie that recently came out called In the Heights about the Dominican population in Washington Heights, New York. And there's been a huge controversy about, has this movie basically suppressed the image of Afro-Latinos in New York and basically whitened the Latino population in New York City? And it's a it's, a, it's an interesting question. So um, to try and answer your question, because it's a very important question, I really focused on whiteness because it seemed to me that there was this ideal of whiteness as having certain characteristics, and one of the most important of those was freedom. Now, you can turn that around and say one of the most important characteristics of blackness is the lack of freedom. But I think there were also other things that were really emphasized, and I'm sort of following Michael Lind at this point, in saying that, okay, blackness emphasized savagery, blackness emphasized uh, danger, uh, sort of lack of intelligence, those kinds of things. And those are all sort of you know, in order to not be black, you had to be a- away from those things. But freedom, on the other hand, was really a privilege, I think, that was um, seen as belonging to whiteness. And one of, one of the ways in which I discuss this, for example, is in my chapter on the Statue of Liberty.
0: Yes, I'm we- glad you talked I, I was oh. going to take you on to, as a as a white European immigrant. This was uh-huh. a real learning experience for me uh, because I hadn't didn't know the history of the Statue of Liberty. I didn't, and you've made me look at it very differently. And in fact, I will quote, I'll quote, if I can find you had this great line, which was a startling line to me. You said the Statue of Liberty is the world's most prominent example of the racialization of modern ideas of freedom. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So say a, bit, say a bit more about the, this, this sort of hidden, hidden history, I think, of the Statue of Liberty.
1: Sure. Well, let me just say a, a couple of points. One of the hidden aspects of this history, of course, is that the original intention behind the Statue of Liberty, or one of the most important original intentions, was to celebrate the abolition of slavery in the United States, to celebrate the idea that the United States was finally the land of the free. Growing up in America, I never learned that this is a part of the history of the Statue of Liberty whatsoever, and I don't think anybody did. It was always associated with immigration and European immigration in particular. But that's also interesting because if you look into the history of uh, European immigration, especially in the early 20th century, and the position of the Statue of Liberty vis-a-vis that, oftentimes the Statue of Liberty is portrayed as uh, opposing European immigration. Uh, there There are all these wonderful cartoons that show the Statue of Liberty being threatened by Irish, Italian, other kinds of European immigrants, right, or shrinking away in horror from these, you know, unruly and by extension, basically non-white mobs of people coming in. And so one of the things I argue about the Statue of Liberty is that in a sense, it never really celebrated immigration at all. It celebrated the children of the immigrants, those who had become Americanized, those who in effect had become white. Then it could celebrate them, but it didn't really celebrate the immigrants themselves who were seen as a non-white and a threat to the United States and a threat to liberty. So that, that's one thing. And the other point I wanted to make about the Statue of Liberty is that, I mean, it's interesting because there's lots of statues of liberty throughout the world. I think there are three in Paris alone, for example. Mm. Um, America has one, really. And it's in the city, that New York, that is most associated with European immigration. Um, I like to point out that there is no Statue of Liberty on the U.S.-Mexico border, for example. Mm. There is no Statue of Liberty in San Francisco's Angel Island to talk about. Uh, European, talk about Asian immigration to the United States, and there is certainly no Statue of Liberty in Charleston, South Carolina, the the, high, the place that really more than any place else symbolizes the the African the transatlantic slave trade, and that brings me to one final point, which is that one of the things the Statue of Liberty tends to do in its location in New York Harbor is to hide the fact that New York was one of America's greatest slave ports. Hmm. So nobody thinks about. People coming to New York's uh, to Manhattan Harbor in chains, but thousands and thousands of people did in the 18th and 19th centuries, and yet it tends to completely hide that history.
0: Yeah, you think about people coming and applauding around the Statue of, of Liberty, as you say, and there's just this great historical detail that uh, that I was not aware of. As Bert- Bertoldi, the architect uh, of the statue, had originally planned to have the figure holding broken chains. Mm-hmm. Right. as a symbol of emancipation. But then having toured the U.S. and got a, a sense of... So this was in 1886, so this was to celebrate you know the centenary, getting a sense of where the U.S. was headed and the tensions around this, especially in the South, decided to replace those broken chains with a book of law. I think there are still some very small chains you can't see, basically. But originally... Unless that, you have a
1: helicopter and you can yeah, fly it. Yeah, there was going to be a
0: huge part of the statue was going to be these broken chains. But the very fact that he decided to change... And that's a non-trivial, non-trivial change in the iconography of, of that. You can imagine that, th- that that's why I think a lot of black Americans understandably have an ambivalent re- view of the Statue of Liberty. Liberty for who and from whom?
1: That's right. That's right. And it's something that comes up every Fourth of July, for example. Um, you know, another aspect of that was that uh, one of the original ideas of the Statue of Liberty was that it should wear the, the so-called Phrygian cap which is the cap worn by Roman slaves who had been freed, right? And it was a real old symbol of uh, freed slaves from the time of the Roman Empire down to the present. Um, You know, uh, Delacroix's famous painting, "Liberty Leading the People, is a really interesting contrast to the Statue of Liberty because in Delacroix's painting, you have Liberty uh, as a woman, very militant, literally leading an army, holding a gun, wearing a Phrygian cap, having broken chains, all of that, really symbolizing the militants of freed slaves. Mm. Um, that's all replaced in the Statue of Liberty. Instead of holding a gun, she's holding a book of law, for example.
0: Yeah, it's uh, very, very uh, calm, also, a very calming figure, a much more calmer figure. You call it a white woman on a pedestal is one of the things you say, but right. a, a soothing kind of imagery.
1: That's right. And, and, and a woman that's basically, she's not moving. She's in stuck in place, right? Uh, yeah. As opposed to somebody literally leading an army
0: much 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 less threatening well the fact that that was to celebrate the war of independence takes me to one of the thorniest issues right now in in history which is the question of how far the war of independence was fought on behalf of slavery you i, I it's hard to imagine a better person to ask this question on, <laughs> honestly than you given your <laughs> your background but you're know that the uh, 1619 Project uh, at the New York Times has strongly argued that this is an understated part of the history of the American Revolution. But very distinguished historians from across the political spectrum have argued mm-hmm. that that was no that's an overstatement and that actually mm-hmm. that, that that now there's too much emphasis being placed on the extent to which the war of independence was a war mm-hmm. for for slavery you, you mentioned this in passing but i don't mm-hmm. i don't think you land specifically on this it's a very very live issue in history right now and of course it's been politicized right so a lot of conservatives <laughs> now are taking it get right so it like everything but um but it's not a cool history seminar debate anymore this this has broken out into politics. Where, where do you come out of that debate?
1: Well, first of all, I, let me just say, I find it a fascinating debate. And I'm, I'm one of those people that, the day that special issue of the New York Times came out, I went, ran down to my local bookstore and bought like 10 copies of the newspaper because I figured I wanted to have this. You know, With well, yeah, this was the day it came out before any of this upheaval erupted in terms of the reception of the idea, because I knew this was a very important issue. For uh, African Americans and all Americans, so I think a couple of things that I, are are important to underscore. First of all, people that have argued that um, slavery was not the this the re- American Revolution was not a revolution for slavery have some points. I mean, there were many slaves like Christmas Christa, addicts who did fight for the American Revolution. Uh, the American Revolution largely led to the abolition or the end of slavery in the North, uh, but not the South. But at the same time, it's also true that had it not been for the, the American fear that the American that the, the British uh, uh, colonialism would mean the end of slavery, it's hard to imagine that many southern states, southern colonies would have joined the struggle. And without the southern colonies joining the struggle, it's quite possible that the American Revolution would have failed. Um, so there's that point. I think the other point is that much of this debate has failed to look at the, the situation from the perspective of the slaves themselves. How did they look at this whole war? Uh, one of the things I argue is that the American Revolution is probably should be seen as the second greatest slave revolt in American history, second only to the Civil War itself. So for American slaves, their reaction was they were going to seize freedom on their own terms. And oftentimes that meant fleeing to the British lines, which is, for example, George Washington's own slaves did that, Mm. for example. Um, And for all those American slaves that fought for the revolution, many more slaves fought for the British by a factor of three or four to one, right? And so one of the questions this history poses is that for African-Americans and all Americans in particular, in general, how should we look at, for example, the history of those slaves that fought for the British for freedom? Were they traitors to to America? Were they fighters for freedom as well? How does their history uh, factor into the history of the American Revolution in the United States in general. How can we integrate their desire for freedom into this history, even though it was a desire for freedom that caused them to take arms up against the the American revolutionaries?
0: Yes, it's fascinating. So there's both a plurality of motives for different states, right? So I think it, part of this is to th- you know hold multiple thoughts in one's head at the same time, which is that some of the motives for different states joining the war could, will be different and arguably for different individuals. But I, I I think this point about what, what actually happened to those who were enslaved is a sort of revealed preference moment to use a horribly technical Mm -hmm. economics. Like (laughs) what, what actually did people, what did people not What did they say, but what did they do? And the fact that you did see so many going to British lines, that, that is a data point about how Mm -hmm. it was perceived. And I, so I think that there's a lot of ambiguity here. I think that the... And you've just captured that ambiguity and complexity perfectly, that there was just... There was a lot going on. Uh, it certainly wasn't a war to end slavery. <laughs> right, but, right. But it's hard to argue for, the, for everybody involved it was also a war primarily driven by slavery, for some participants mm-hmm. maybe, but arguably not for the major ones. Is that fair, Some
1: Yeah, and, you know, some people have argued that... Slavery was seen as a dying institution. In many ways, it was a dying institution at the time of the American Revolution. And the hope of many Northerners was that, okay, they could win freedom from the British and then slavery would basically die out. The problem with that was a couple of things. First of all, the invention of the cotton gin and the development of new technologies that made uh, slavery much more profitable. And then the expansion of the United States uh, to the South West, the creation of, of states like Mississippi and Alabama which um, made slavery much more profitable. There's an old phrase uh, that talks about being sold down the river. The phrase comes from the slave experience of slaves that were sold from places like Virginia and the Carolinas down the river to the, to Alabama and Mississippi, where slavery was much more exploitative and much more harsh, but also, of course, much more profitable. So what you had was a, a, a new United States where many people had hoped for the end of slavery, instead becoming, in fact, more dependent on slavery than ever uh, economically.
0: Yeah, that was one of the, I mean, the paradox. In fact, through the 19th century uh, too, you talk about how race became more salient even as ideas of liberalism became more salient. And I, I hope we'll get to some of that. I think One of the questions, particularly in, in a US context more generally, which is the extent to which the enlightenment ideas of liberty, which I think you correctly say hugely influenced the US. I think Henry Commager said, Europe dreamt the Enlightenment, but America made it come true That's or something right. like that. That's right, right? yeah. Uh, and what he meant is kind of institutionally and, and so on, so the, the society. But, and it's also interesting to me that you quote, you actually start your description of the intellectual history of liberalism with actually British, with John Stuart Mill, and then I think Acton mm-hmm. and Isaiah Berlin, although you're interested in France and the US. Right, interesting. right. And so I think that this question of whether or not enlightenment ideas of liberty say of john stuart mill it's my subject mm-hmm. were racialized or were racist mm-hmm. and i think you can argue that so I'll, I'll make the argument there was racialized not racist right? so you take mm-hmm. ideals of liberty autonomy self-government freedom of expression etc from someone like mill who i would argue was was not a racist we can mm-hmm. yeah, maybe discuss it, but mm-hmm. certainly by the certainly by the context of this huge supporter of the north absolutely said, said that the u s. Civil war was a war to, for the right to burn people alive and so mm-hmm. on um, but that those ideas were racialized in order to support the rule of white men, frankly and of yeah. white countries over colonial countries so they were racialized rather than intrinsically racist at least in the hands of someone like mill if not in the hands of others is that would you agree with that do you think it got right you use the word racialized a lot so that suggests a process rather than a Mm -hmm. than a feature
1: i I would agree with that and let me go off on a tangent here and talk about something i was thinking about recently which hopefully has some relevance to this discussion i love a tangent um i i i love listening to music on my iphone and i was recently listening to uh the allman brothers classic southern rock song whipping post Hmm. Well, you know, it had never occurred to me before what the image of the whipping post was. And of course, it is an image that comes directly out of American slavery. So I looked it up on the web to see if there was discussion of this. And of course, the discussion was, were the Allman Brothers racist or not? And using this kind of term to write their probably their greatest song. And the consensus was, and this is actually a consensus I agreed with, which I don't often do, but that they were not racist, but this was a racialized form of expression that really underscored the the central role of African-American music and culture in Southern culture, including Southern white rock music, right? So sorry, I went off on a tangent there. Right. But I think that sort of speaks to how I see, you know, if something is racialized, it, it, it creates a kind of repertoire that can be used in different kinds of ways intellectually. And one of those is certainly racist. It does not have to be the only one. But uh, it does emphasize that people like John Stuart Mill thought in those terms whether or not they wanted to uh, use them harshly or not. And, you know, there are other figures in history, for example, um, uh, Count Gobineau, who was the person that probably the the most important racial racial thinker in um, French history, uh, was anti-slavery, you know. He figured that, um, and this goes back to the whole issue issue of humanity again. He figured that African American Africans in many ways were sort of subhuman, but that that did not mean you should treat them cruelly, right? Um, yes,
0: I think you make the point that you know, racist racist science didn't always lead to sort of racist outcomes or something. Right, right. Coming similar similar to that, and so there's what happens as a result of an idea like freedom liberty like being racialized is that it creates as I'm just playing back I think what you've said is this repertoire of ways in which these concepts are used and then it creates a self-fulfilling cycle if mm-hmm. you if you've if you've embedded the idea of liberty being white and I think one of the that's obviously the constant theme Mm -hmm. of your book then it means that to jump forward massively in history you think of the white people of eastern europe as appallingly enslaved but Mm -hmm. much more relaxed about colonial subjects for example and so you it then creates its own its its own dynamic so even if it's not intellectually at root necessarily racist it becomes Mm -hmm. racist in its application in historical fact
1: Yeah. Let me also speak to a point you made earlier when you talked about me being interested in, you know, even though the book is focused on France and America, being interested in British intellectual thought, for example. um, One of the things I I address is that for many reasons, including my own training and my own history, I decided to focus this book primarily on two countries, France and the United States, uh, partly just because they're the countries I know best but also because they're the countries for whom liberty is at the center of their national identity. But it seemed to me it was impossible to write this kind of book without looking at two other major experiences. One is the experience of Britain and the British Empire, and the other is the experience of Nazi Germany, um, because both also in very different kinds of ways looked at the issue of race. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine writing a world history of race without touching on Nazi Germany, for example. Right. Which um, you, you do. But they also looked at the history of freedom as well, so
0: yes yes i think that's right um and actually that makes me think a little bit about the the lines question of like who who's included and who isn't and how nazi ideology and to some extent following and you make a good case i think that they actually did borrow from some of the racial laws in the u.s Mm -hmm. um in terms of drawing lines but but you also, and another theme that runs through the book is this issue of gender and the way that mm-hmm. some of these ideas of freedom are gendered as well as racialized and then obviously sometimes both. And, and I think that's the question then, it which is you take something like the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment and civil rights and so on, which is that there was a similar idea around how far the state should be involved in enforcing equal liberties if we can put mm-hmm. it that way right so you think about mm-hmm. the reaction against the era it was mm-hmm. sim- there's a there's a sort of similarity i think i'm not making a, a direct comparison yeah. of course but but there's a sort of sense like it, like you could say look i'm in favor of equality but i don't think it's any business of the government to enforce it right through mm-hmm. through bill of rights and so mm-hmm. is that a fair comparison between the way that gender and race have been treated in historic in historical terms around freedom
1: I, th- I think it is. I mean, it's a really complex question because let me, let me go back for a moment to the Statue of Liberty, which is the Statue of Liberty is the portrait of an unfree woman, right? Um, she's a woman who's, uh, you know, kept in a certain position, is subject to basically masculine authority. Um, and yet at the same time is also portrayed as a woman that is, is powerful. I mean, one of the interesting things about the history of the Equal Rights Amendment, for example, is that the opposition to it, the successful opposition to it, was led by women. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly Absolutely. is the ultimate example yeah. of a woman who is fighting for a certain position of women in society and is a very powerful woman um, and demonstrates both women's power and women's subservience in the same in the same breadth. You know, I mean, she's one of the most complex figures of the 20th century in the United States, I think, politically. But, you know, you cannot understand the, the American new right without understanding its general uh, its gender politics. And the politics of people like Phyllis Schlafly,
0: yes, who ended up, I think, being a significant contributor to the rise of Reagan Absolutely. and yeah. and the new New Right. So I think that I think that's a very good connection to make um, between all of those. But it does, I think, speak a little bit to the extent to which it's back to this intrinsic question: it's like, were those ideas of freedom and liberty intrinsically sexist? Mm -hmm. or were they Mm -hmm. operationalized in a sexist way because they were being born, they were being produced in a patriarchal society. But I think one of the things that you talk about quite a lot and and where I think you could, for example, be more critical of Mill, who did after all say that despotism is a legitimate mode of government for dealing with barbarians, Mm -hmm. provided the Mm -hmm. end be their improvement. And that's an interesting position for Mill to take. And it gets us into this idea of kind of reason and the role of reason and racism. You talk a lot about this. You say that the freedom and self-government were closely linked to the capability for reason and rational thought. Sure. And you go on to say only the enlightened could be truly free. So that if mm-hmm. if reason was racialized, then so was liberty. And in some ways, that feels like a big theme here, which is mm-hmm. I, I'm. I, I'm just going to, it almost doesn't have to, I'm just going to say, look, there's a certain level of skill, a certain level of knowledge, a certain level of rationality that's required for you to enjoy the fruits of liberty. And I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but you don't have those, or maybe you don't have those yet. And there are, there are obviously right. more or less uh, coherent and maybe acceptable versions of that thought, but it seems like it applies across this racial gender thing, right, which is that you just, you're not thinking straight enough for freedom yet.
1: Yeah, let me respond to that in a couple of ways. First of all, this is a real major theme in the history of French colonialism in particular. The idea that French colonialism, French imperialism was something that was going to civilize the natives and make them, you know, uh, capable of enjoying freedom. Now, you can you know look at the minor contradiction of the fact that if the French were all that interested in civilizing the natives, they would have invested a lot more in colonial schools than they in fact did. Um, small contradiction aside, um, but that idea was very powerful. But the other thing I wanted to uh, point out, because I think our, our conversation is sort of going there, this is one of the reasons why I decided to write about children. And the idea of freedom, because so much of what you've just said applies above all to children. I mean, Mill talked about freedom being reserved to the mature races, right? You have to be mature to enjoy freedom. And let's face it, most people to this day feel that children do not have freedom as a a right. They have to be ruled over uh, and told what to do until they are capable of exercising their own proper judgment. All of our modern societies are built on that
0: idea. Yes. Uh, Do you have children, by the way?
1: (laughs) I do. Who? Somebody? He's my son. Is twenty. So okay.
0: But did you? We've been there, done that. Yes. uh, But I presume you (laughs) didn't. I bet you didn't give him absolute freedom. (laughs) No, we didn't. We didn't. You
1: know, (laughs) and And, um, and I was, you know, all the time when I was writing this book and he was in his teenage years, and that's another issue, by the way. Um, I was very conscious of the contradictions, and um, I was waiting for him at some point to just sort of throw it in my face, which he never did. Actually, he's a very very polite young man, but, um, but absolutely.
0: I have three grown (laughs) sons as well. So we're, 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 uh, we're sharing some of those experiences I think, but, but it is interesting. And and you do talk about that idea of, you know, savagery and lack of rationality and need for control, Mm -hmm. which those who've had children will probably, (laughs) you know, at least go part of the way, but, but, but it seems to me then that that's a connecting this idea of reason and rationality and self-government is that, to some extent, infantilization mm-hmm. is what lies behind the exclusion by race and gender or whatever from the idea of liberty. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a sort of that's the underlying thing, right? If I inva- if I infantilize you, then I can deny you from, I can deny right. you liberty essentially because you just in the same way that I don't let kids do it. Then so yeah, that's kind of interesting, kind of thought. Yeah, and then yeah, that and leads you to the colonialism point.
1: Right. And it also ties in with what you were saying about gender, because one of the things I look at is the way in which Western images of childhood change uh, in the modern era. I mean, from a period where children were basically just seen as little adults to a point where the whole idea of the age of innocence, where children are seen as these, you know, precious beings that have to be protected, that have to be controlled and also have to be controlled. In some ways, it's very similar to the idea of uh, the Victorian idea of womanhood. Right somebody who's very precious and um really not capable of ruling themselves and have to be protected for their own good right yes Um, of course yes the difference of course is that children supposedly grow out of that uh, whereas of course in the victorian ideal women never do
0: yes and in the racist ideal people of color don't either so paternalism is perfectly legitimate when when it's you're dealing with a, a child one of the Sto- you tell the story of the sort of ebb and flow of progress towards racial equality in the U.S. Mm-hmm. All, all the way through, and, and it's, it's vivid and searing in, in many places. But one of so the, the things I think you do- topical now,
1: too. Let me uh, I, mean,
0: so, I, re- I mean, really, uh, it's, uh, you know, in that sense, I couldn't be better timed, I think, uh, as some of these issues come back. And but one of the things that struck me again was how you talk about the end of Reconstruction, and and mm-hmm. I will say again that was a real learning for me. I actually went to the museum in Greensboro, mm-hmm. and one of the things they have there is they have a list of all the Black members of Congress over the years, mm-hmm. and you just see how ma- how many there were uh, at, during Reconstruction, and it's just ex- and then and then and then none. And actually, you quote from I'd love you to read this if you have it to hand. It's on page. I think it was on one, page 174 of my copy 174, book. 174, yes. It's George Henry White's speech in 1901 mm-hmm. as he was essentially leaving Congress, and you describe that as the speech that marked the end of black freedom in America from this black congressman who's basically the last one to, mm-hmm. to, before it becomes all white again. Would you mind reading that excerpt?
1: Not at all, and let me just state that, again, this was George Henry White was... He lost his seat because simply his constituents were terrorized into not voting, um, and therefore he could not win. So in his farewell speech, he says, now, Mr. Chairman, before concluding my remarks, I want to submit a brief recipe for the solution of the so-called American Negro problem. He asks no special favors, but simply demands that he be given the same chance for existence, for earning a livelihood for raising himself in the, in the scales of manhood and womanhood that are accorded to kindred nationalities, this Mr. Chairman is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say, phoenix- like he will rise up some day and come again. These parting words are in behalf of an outraged, heartbroken, bruised, and bleeding, but god-fearing people, faithful, industrious, loyal people, rising people, full of potential force
0: yes just it's it's uh spine tingling actually to 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 read that and talking about rising back how it took a long time of course mm-hmm. uh, and still very incomplete but how do you characterize that century <laughs> it's just a, a totally unfair question but from 1901 through to 2001 and particularly the the failures as well as the huge successes of the of the civil mm-hmm. rights movement or you talk a lot about the fights over busing and integration and so on which was which came after i mean you also do a great study of world sure. war one and world war two so we're, yeah. we're bouncing around here but talk a little okay. bit about how, how you see the successes and failures of the civil rights movement because this issue about voting rights and citizenship really became the new frontier right
1: mm-hmm Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And let me say in answering that question, first of all, I I, I want to identify myself as the son of a veteran of World War II and the grandson of a veteran of World War I. So um, it's something very, very much part of my own family history. Uh, And I want to emphasize the wars because in both cases, especially World War II, they really gave a space for African-Americans and other peoples of color to identify themselves as contributing to the national effort, as part of the national effort. And the the disenchantment of coming back from uh, service to face racism again was something that was a searing moment for African-Americans. I mean, 1919, the year after World War I, was, saw more lynchings of African-Americans than any other year in American history. And many of these African-Americans who were lynched were soldiers in uniform, former soldiers in uniform. And the message was clear. You're not going to come back with the expect, expectation that the kind of privileges or respect you had during the war are going to continue once the war is over. You're going to come back to America that's just going to be the same as it was before the war. And the point is that ultimately it wasn't. In many ways, the Civil Rights Movement started in 1945. Uh, people have recently looked at the, number of the, the large number of uh, veterans of World War II that were active in the Civil Rights Movement and saw this as their due, that they had the right, having fought for America, to enjoy the privileges of American American citizens, all the privileges of American citizens. And so I think it is, um, in many ways, a very stirring story and a very moving story. And the the story of the Civil Rights Movement, of course, has its parallels overseas with the, the history of decolonization and the ends of European empires in both cases, subject peoples fighting for their their freedom and for their recognition as free peoples. Um, I like to point out that Julius Nyerere, who became the first president of Tanzania, wrote no fewer than six books with the word freedom in the title. So the issue of freedom was absolutely central to all these movements. And in my uh, sort of analysis, 1965, the year 1965, represents the high point of these movements. It's the the year that sees the signing of the most significant civil rights legislation in in America. By 1965, most European colonies in Africa and Asia have achieved independence. And it does seem as though there is going to be a movement towards full-fledged equality that's going to be worldwide. And then you have a backlash that begins to set in, certainly in the United States, in different kinds of ways in the former colonized countries, where you have a, a situation where what they thought of as freedom is not so free after all. They are still in many ways tied to the former mother countries like Britain and France uh, in many different kinds of ways. And in the United States, you have, for example, one of the the key issues around uh, the civil rights movement was the whole struggle for school integration. I mean, in many ways, one of the landmark moments was Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. Okay. If you look at school integration since then, School integration is the great campaign of the civil rights movement. It is also, in many ways, the great failure of the civil rights movement. Uh, The whole campaign around busing, uh, for example, which is uh, the idea of busing for school integration largely fails. And it largely fails not just because of white racist Southerners, but because of white liberals as well. People like Joe Biden, our current president, who made his reputation in many ways as an opponent of school busing for integration. Um, and then you have other things that happen that, you know, s- underscore the fact that freedom is not going to be completely, uh, f- completely successful. The whole successful fight against affirmative action, for example, in the United States, the whole mobilization of the new right, which is largely mobilized around racial issues. And these things go down to the present day. So currently, we're, you know, I, it was interesting reading the c- quotation from uh, George Henry Wright. Because what we have now in American politics is a, a kind of repetition of that whole attempt to uh, prevent black people from voting, to destroy the, the franchise, franchise, to limit the franchise for, for white people, basically. This is, goes straight back to the era of Reconstruction. Uh, and no matter what Republican senators and congressmen may say about it, the parallel is clear. The lessons are clear. This is an, this is an attempt to prevent black people from voting, and to keep black people subordinate
0: in American society. So this question of citizenship became the real frontier because liberal democracy. You know, we now we're now learning to unpack those two terms, of course, mm-hmm. as we have the rise mm-hmm. of illiberal democracies. But but as you point out, they went together, and so there was the sense of sort of civil freedom, economic freedom, or what, but then was the right to vote. And that was true in de- you know, decolonialization movements, but also in the U.S. too. And you now that's why voting rights has, has long mm. been um, a huge issue in the U.S. So do you think that up until at least recent history, that, that movement had been largely successful?
1: I think that's true. I mean, you know, look, we have a, a vice president who's a woman of color of uh, South Asian and African-American descent. Um, you have uh, African-American Congress, uh, congressmen, large numbers of them. You have senators even. Um, so the representation, we're far ways away from legislatures that are lily white, for example. And that makes a real difference. Uh, there is voting power and there is significant voting power. And in fact, precisely because of that, do you have this movement uh, in many southern states to restrict the ability of African-Americans to vote. I mean, there was this case in Texas that just happened of a man who was on, because he was on parole and actually chose to vote, waited in line for six uh, hours to do so, has now been called, uh, threatened with a a 40-year sentence by an estate attorney general, who, by the way, is also under indictment, but threatened with a 100-year prison sentence, right? Uh, But who happens to be white. So you have this reaction precisely because of the successes of the movement to make citizenship and freedom a universal category, and it's sort of like a last gasp attempt to preserve white freedom, basically.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good description of it. Um, and we'll see we'll see how far it gets legally. Um, you know, i I think there's a yeah. there's a, an interesting set of legal challenges ahead. But I, I want to distinguish between the citizenship question and voting question from the integration challenges mm-hmm. and particularly around mm-hmm. school integration because they're obviously they're happening a lot of these things are happening at similar periods of time but there is a difference i think because mm-hmm. the problem if you have very segregated cities and you do your schools on the basis of neighborhoods then you'll end up with segregated schools mm-hmm. and so busing then becomes the answer right you can't mm-hmm. if if the kids are of different races living in different places but you want your schools to be integrated so that becomes quite a an a assertive public policy which Mm -hmm. is trying to solve an underlying problem by moving the kids around Mm -hmm. Um, and so and then that creates all kinds of reactions for for both good and and bad reasons but is it fair to say that for some people anyway it's not necessarily motivated by racial animus to not want their kids to be bussed, you know an hour across school Mm -hmm. uh, across the city or whatever then the idea of a neighborhood school is important to parents so I do think racism underpins a lot of the white resistance, don't get me wrong, but I also think there are there are more plausible arguments why, you know, having hundreds of thousands of kids being, you know, crisscrossed across the city in order to integ- integrate our schools, having failed to integrate our neighborhoods, isn't mm-hmm. crazy necessarily. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that fair? Is there any response to that?
1: No, I think that that's, that's very fair. I mean, I think that there are all sorts of reasons why, uh, for example people would not want to have their their kids bused. I should indicate, by the way, that in most cases where there was busing involved, it was mostly the black kids that were bused, not the white
0: kids. So the burden
1: fell primarily on students of color rather than white students. And there were lots of black parents who resented that fact and really didn't want to have their kids, not just spending long times on the bus, but then being bused into what they saw as hostile neighborhoods. Uh, Because these are little children after all, you know? Um, and there's also the issue of okay, well, why are why are why are neighborhoods segregated? Mm. Okay, um, and there's a whole history behind that, ranging from, you know, conscious policies. I mean, when my parents moved to the suburbs when I was six years old, for example, we moved into a mostly white suburb, but the block we lived on was all black, and that was not an accident. It was defined that way by city statute.
0: You get micro-segregation re- reoccurring. And, and I, you yeah. quote Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, mm-hmm. uh, I think. And I think that's mm-hmm. a very good analysis of the way in which segregation is a result of intentional public policy. This is not right. you know, this is not just shelling-style micro-preferences. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I think it will take intentional public policy to sure. undo that housing segregation. But in the meantime, you do have this issue of moving the kids around. It's interesting to me, though, that when you talk to a lot of... Uh, black educators i'm thinking about some of the people that have actually set up charter schools and so on mm-hmm. um, in places like new york i actually talked to this guy who runs charter school network and i pointed out to him that all his students were black
1: mm-hmm. in other
0: words his schools were very segregated and he said mm-hmm. i know that's the point um yeah. uh, you know said so i might let the odd white kid in just to, every now and again to you know but but my point the purpose of these schools is to give a better education to the black mm-hmm. kids here who wouldn't otherwise get one and so right. it did sort of reminded me that integration is uh, a means to an end, as well as an end in itself. Mm-hmm. If the end is better education, particularly for, for black kids, then maybe you get that through integration. But there are a lot of black educators that push back. It. And you even quote the Biden quote, which you got in your book. Mm-hmm sort of taps into that a bit, where he mm-hmm. said it's insulting to say that black kids can only do mm-hmm. better if they're put alongside white kids. And so you now do de- you see some black educators resisting the idea and saying, why do we need to integrate? Why can't I just give a better, better education to black, to black kids in a predominantly black school? What's the problem? That's right.
1: And also people will argue that um, if you're talking about the most important thing being building up the self-concept of black students, of teaching black students that they are capable, that they are intelligent, they're more likely to get that from black teachers than from white teachers, right? They're more likely to get that in an all black classroom than an integrated classroom. So, and and this, you know, this has been a debate among many African-Americans and others, other groups for a long, long time. I mean, you know, there was a whole strand of thought in the 1960s and 70s of many uh, politically active African-Americans saying, forget about the whole issue of integration. What we need to do is build up our own neighborhoods and we need to get the resources to do so. Of course, that poses the question of how are you going to get those resources uh, to build up what is in effect a segregated and, by definition, inferior neighborhood and inferior culture. So there there are all these kinds of issues that come into play. Let me throw another issue uh, with regard to the housing segregation. You know, I live in California, which is the paradise of NIMBYism, not in my Mm. backyard, where people want to keep their neighborhoods pristine. And people are perfectly happy if a black family could move into a two million dollar split-level house, right? But the idea of building, you know, multifamily housing that would be more likely to create uh, an integrated neighborhood—they're going to be fiercely opposed to, even though they also have Black Lives Matter signs in their front windows. And you, you, you laugh, but I've seen exactly. No, that, no,
0: I'm, right? I'm smiling because I've written about this, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I, I've actually written, say, I sometimes that hate has no home here, Black Lives Matter. And then a uh, resist development sign next, exactly, literally yes. on the same on the same lawn. The kind of hypocrisy mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Uh, the liberal upper white upper middle class is one of my 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 favorite favorite themes. But um, well, come to I, Berkeley,
1: I, I, you will see it in full flower here.
0: Yes, <laughs> I have. I know. I have seen. In fact, in neighborhood in DC where where I live, I would say to people that the evidence is that there's a little bit less racial segregation, a little bit less, but massively more economic segregation outweighing mm-hmm. that. And so it's exactly mm-hmm. your point. Your neighbor is a little bit more likely to be black, a little bit more. We're still massively segregated by international, yeah. but only if they're a lawyer right. or a lobbyist, right? <laughs> right <laughs> so right. so there's still gated communities in, in one way or another. And so I, I agree. And I think there's some suggestion that, that we might move a little bit on that air in, in that direction. But but it's interesting that it feels to me as if, the you know, back to this busing thing, is that you're right, it was black kids that were moving. Actually, Robert Putnam once said to me, he said, well, you've either got to move the money, move the parents, or move the kids, Mm -hmm. right? What are you going to do and which is is easier to do? And I see busing as a really Mm suboptimal strategy for overcoming the real problem, which Mm -hmm. is the degree to which we we are to kind of truly truly segregated and really it comes to this point about how far does a state have to exercise power to mm-hmm. make these things happen right it comes mm-hmm. back and I think maybe that's where we'll where we'll end i want to talk a little bit about where we are now and where we've mm-hmm. got to since you used 89 as a good punctuation point i mm-hmm. think um, we've seen since then you know more recently there's a rise of nativism nationalism mm-hmm. populism very often inflected through a, a racial lens and you talk a lot about that and the economic anxiety that has gone along with it and I, I, I'm going to try and characterize what I think is your position okay see if I get it if I get mm-hmm. it right and then we can kind of talk about it which is particularly towards the end what you you seem to give quite a lot of weight to the idea that economic anxiety is one of the big parts of the of the problem here and that that mm-hmm. creates an environment within which these you know racist ideologies can um, can succeed so I'm going to quote directly from your book what you say towards the end of the book is for me therefore the ultimate question is not so much whether racism will disappear and the universal vision of freedom triumph rather it is whether future societies will overcome the need for white freedom Mm. by assuring a good life for all their members and you go on to say will we find a way to free our societies from the need for whiteness so you're speaking here to the some kind of necessity that people feel for ideas of whiteness and white freedom, which by implication is more about something to do with economic insecurity. Mm-hmm. Therefore, only by only by, only by by dealing with the economic insecurity of all people, including whites, mm-hmm. by implication, will we be able to move beyond the need for us? What, what yeah. do you mean by the need for white freedom and how do we move beyond it?
1: Okay, well, you know, it's interesting. A lot has happened since I wrote those lines and even since that book came out in print. And, I, I, you know, one of the things that really inspired me was I was really fascinated by this whole phenomenon of people who voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. And I was like, so I don't get these people. Why would you vote for two such completely different kinds of individuals? And one argument was simply that both, of, rep, both represented a kind of outside challenge to the establishment in very different kinds of ways that was attractive. But, I, I you know, I also think that there was a sense that, Voting for Donald Trump represented an assertion of, you know, of your outsider status and the fact that somebody heard you in the White House and was going to take care of you. So um, but so there's that. And then there's also the fact that ever since the 1970s, America has really been a country that has been much more emphasizing the haves versus the have-nots, or as one person put it, the have-lots versus the Mm have-nots, right? Um, That social policy, economic policy, has really privileged those people that are highly educated and highly um, marketable. And the idea of, you know, the whole 60s idea of the, the sort of American working class that was highly paid, people that families could afford a new car every year, so on and so forth, did not have to worry about school expenses, that in many ways has disappeared, right? Um, and it's real. I mean, it's not just in America that's happened, but especially in the United States, you have a situation where either you are affluent or else you are poor, and there's very little in between. I mean, I live in, in, you know, I'm currently living in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is one of the worst aspects of that, where, you know, the average house, which, you know, in the 1960s, you know, somebody, a working person could afford, is now far out of range range of that. I mean, for example, I was talking to a neighbor of mine who lives in a very expensive street in Berkeley. She said when she grew up in that street, their next door neighbor was somebody who was a plumber and had four kids and a wife that didn't work. That is unimaginable now, you know? And because of that, people are justifiably very afraid about their future and the future of their children, right? So unless we can restore an America that's, you know, sort of like the America that I was born in, that has opportunity in that kind of way, it is hard to imagine people um, getting rid of the the need for white freedom. And let me just say one other thing, which is that one of the things that's happened since uh, then is the whole, the the attack on quote, critical race theory. The fact that you have different school districts, uh, different states passing laws against uh, teaching certain perspectives on racism, so on and so forth. I can remember uh, watching this white woman with her two young daughters just in tears, talking about how insulted she was by this, how horrified she was by this. And it seemed to me there had to be something more happening than just, you know, the books her daughters were reading in school. There had to be something that had to do with her whole fear for her daughter's future and their place in society that she was just outraged by, you know. And she thought that, you know, preventing people from reading Richard Wright would solve that, right? Okay, well, you know, I don't think so. But, you know, there is a problem,
0: nonetheless. There's some anxieties about it. But again, it's one of those issues which, because it gets thrown into the, the, the more of the culture war, is that you see some places trying to ban critical race theory, whatever, however they define it. Other places apparently trying to mandate it, however they define it, rather than trusting history teachers, hopefully from diverse backgrounds, to, to, to teach history. So that it's interesting how both, both the left and the right around that issue have reached for quite coercive measures. Mm -hmm. Again, to some extent to contain teachers, right? (laughs) Is -hmm. to tell Mm -hmm. teachers what they may and may not do, what they must and must not say. And so I think it, to some extent, I think there's an unholy alliance between left and right to attack the autonomy of teachers Mm -hmm. and a a sort of lack of trust in in teachers to Mm -hmm. move with the times to update their priors. I'm not suggesting all of them will, but on the one hand, you get these people on the right saying that kids are being forced to teach a Marxist ideology, to hate white people and so on. You're like, no. Mm-hmm. no, they're not. But on the other hand, you'll get people who will honestly say, you know, we're not teaching the, the history of slavery um, to our kids. And like, well, that's not true either. I mean, so and not suggesting so recent right. progress, but I wanna come back to your point about inequality, which is an area where I do quite a bit of work. And I agree that you see this pulling away the top 20, 10, and obviously the mm-hmm. 1% and so on. But I think it also is this idea of meritocracy Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, as you all know, was originally coined as a dystopia. But Mm -hmm. Amartya Sen once wrote the the problem, one of the many problems, I think, with the idea of meritocracy is who gets to define merit. And that is always the winners. And so if if, if I, as a a highly educated person with a certain cognitive skill set, etc., defines merit, as having a certain cognitive skill set and high levels of education, then well, it turns out that they're living in a, it's a great meritocracy for them, and so the winners define the terms of the race. But I also think it does overlap a little bit with some of your work on race, because if you believe you live in a meritocracy, then the only reason why people of a certain race or color or creed are failing can only be because of something that's wrong with them. Well, let me end with a saying that
1: my mother used to love to quote. And it it goes this. It says, a society that values philosophy because it is an exalted activity and looks down on plumbing because it is a low-level activity will have neither good philosophy nor good plumbing. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water.
0: Yes. Is that
1: Keynes? i think, think that's so tense. yeah i think it's Keynes.
0: Yeah. we'll have someone look it up and link to it in the show i'm pretty sure but it's it's a terrific quote this has been just a great conversation congratulations again on what is a magisterial book a timely and important book and thank you for joining me today I appreciated our time together thanks for listening to dialogues i hope you enjoyed that conversation And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate and share the podcast in all the usual places and send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.